uh, Virginia. They were playing some team over there in the hills. I don't know. I can't remember what the demo was. But uh, I really appreciate the, your sensitivity and kindness. You know, if somebody's down, you encourage each other. And so I get a note at my desk, Sandy, there's nothing sweeter than a big orange victory. <laughs> Coakley, you know where you can go. Yeah, you're welcome. I think uh, the Virginia players had to get to the library. <clears throat> All right. Man's biggest problem we saw is not just friends like John Coakley. Our big problem is dealing with things like authority. We saw that last time. Take your Bibles in Mark chapter uh, 12. We had studied Mark 11 and saw that Jesus shows us his real authority, and it's difficult sometimes to accept that authority. That's the reason that in the Ten Commandments, we have the first commandment is love no one but God, God alone. Fifth commandment, which is the first of those commandments that have to do with human relationships, is not thou shalt not murder. The first commandment on the second tablet, so to speak, is that we should obey our parents. It's, a, it's a, a commandment of authority. So you see that when we order uh, human relationships in the second tablet of the law, we begin with authority structures. That's the reason the family is so important. That's the reason that loving, kind, merciful leadership in your home is so important. So that kids uh, learn not only to respect authority, but to love authority and not to resent it. One of the biggest problems that keeps men like ourselves from being effective right where we are is sometimes our lack of ability to relate successfully to authority. Those of you who are younger, one of the biggest problems you face in business is that you're under authority from someone who actually is not as smart as you are. And if you figure out the percentages, that happens more than 50% of the time. And you feel like it's happening all the time. But at least 50% of the time, Someone who's younger and starting out is reporting to someone who's not as smart as they are. And sometimes it's very difficult to learn how to submit to authority that's not as sharp as you are. And indeed, one day you'll probably go to greater successes than the one who's managing you. But you need to learn to submit cheerfully, supportively uh, in the position that you're in. One of the difficulties for those of you who are older, who, who have gotten to the point in life where you're exercising more authority, is you've never learned how to exercise it in such a way that people can receive it happily. And so on both ends of the spectrum, uh, whether you're, you're uh, someone who's reporting to or someone who's, who's uh, supervising over, uh, it's an issue of authority that often keeps us from being effective. And what we find is the same thing in your spiritual life. If we haven't learned how to deal with authority in human relations, it usually goes back ultimately to the issue of our not knowing how to deal with God, uh, the ultimate authority. And what Jesus is doing, of course, is uh, showing us his authority and uh, enabling us to react to that authority and in showing us the problems when we reject it. Now, let's uh, start with chapter 12. If I remember correctly, that's where we left off last week. And uh, we're going to see that Jesus tells a parable about how uh, what happens to folks who reject his authority. And this is Roman numeral number two on last week's notes. The authority of Jesus is a curse to unrepentant human authority. We saw that the authority of Jesus is a threat to unbelieving human authority. His authority is always a threat, and you can see that. In the unbelieving world, and no matter which part of the world it's in, including our own, people react against the authority of Jesus Christ. They, they don't like it, and they attack his authority. In some places, they do so uh, with murderous threats. In some places, they simply try to marginalize you, either politically or socially or some other way. But there's always a reaction from the unbelieving world to the, the authority of God through Jesus Christ. Now, we're going to find that that leads to very bad news for anyone who does reject his authority. And let's look at verses 1 through 12 and see how this plays out. And then after that, we'll begin to examine some questions. Uh, we're just calling it a bunch of questions. And these questions are all coming from people who are, who are questioning his authority. Some of them very severely with their minds already made up. And in one case, at least, authority, a question that's a, a sincere question uh, from someone who really wants to know. 
And both of these are mixed in as Jesus faces the questions that come to him. Now, before we even look at this, let's realize this. If you decide to be a disciple of Jesus Christ, even your authority is going to be questioned. Uh, Your authority to say what the truth is. Your authority to say what is right and wrong is always going to be questioned from those who do not serve the same master that you do. And so when we look at Jesus here, we'll see not only one who is beautifully displaying his lordship over all of creation and over all of redemption, but one who's giving us a marvelous example of how we too need to be ready to give an answer for the hope that is in us because we too are going to be questioned. If you are engaged openly and candidly with the world around you and you're following Jesus Christ, just count on it, you're going to be questioned. They may mutter about you behind your back, but you'll also get questions to your face. And that's exactly what happened to Jesus. Now, let's look at this parable. And this is kind of a summarizing parable of judgment that shows what at heart is happening when people challenge his authority. And then what, of course, will happen at the end of the day. This is chapter 12, verse 1. He then began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard. He put a wall around it dug a pit for the wine press, and built a watchtower. Then he rented the vineyard to some farmers and went away on a journey. At harvest time, he sent a servant to the tenants to collect from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. But they seized him, beat him, and sent him away empty-handed. Then he sent another servant to them. They struck this man on the head and treated him shamefully. He sent still another, and that one they killed. He sent many others. Some of them they beat, others they killed. He had one left to send, a son whom he loved. He sent him last of all, saying, They will respect my son. But the tenants said to one another, This is the heir. Come, let's kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. So they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. What then will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and kill those tenants and give the vineyard to others. Haven't you read this scripture? The stone the builders rejected has become the capstone. The Lord has done this, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Then they looked for a way to arrest him because they knew he had spoken the parable against them. But they were afraid of the crowd, so they left him and went away. I notice, first of all, in verse 1, this is A, God's warrant to rule is rooted in his sovereign ownership. It says here, a man planted a vineyard. The members of God's church are simply God's tenants. We have a good landlord and we have a good deal. He planted a vineyard. He gave it over to us. Take your Bibles, leave your finger right there, but take your Bibles and turn back to Isaiah chapter 5. And we'll see here this, this uh, usage of the analogy of a vineyard. And see what Isaiah says. This is the song of the vineyard. In Isaiah chapter 5, this is page uh, 1080, 1080. And uh, Isaiah says, I will sing for the one I love. Isaiah is, of course, uh, speaking the words of God. This is God speaking. I will sing for the one I love, a song about his vineyard. My loved one has uh, had a vineyard on a fertile hillside. He dug it up and cleared it of stones and planted it with the choicest vines He built a watchtower in it and cut out a wine press as well. Then he looked for a crop of good grapes, but it yielded only bad fruit. Now you dwellers in Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more could have been done for my vineyard than I've done for it? When I look for good grapes, why did it yield only bad? Now I will tell you what I'm going to do to my vineyard. I will take away its hedge and it will be destroyed. I will break down its wall and it will be trampled. I will make it a wasteland, neither pruned nor cultivated, and briars and thorns will grow there. I will command the clouds not to rain on it. The vineyard of the Lord Almighty, look at this, is the house of Israel. And the men of Judah are the garden of his delight. And he looked for justice, but saw bloodshed. For righteousness, but heard cries of distress. And, of course, those cries were coming from the poor. So the vineyard is, in Old Testament language, uh, just language for the church. And so he is telling us he has a warrant to rule over the church because he made it. He planted uh, the vineyard and gave it to us. So God owns us. That's where it all begins. Secondly, notice in the rest of the of this parable that God's warrant to condemn or to judge 
is rooted in our sin, our murderous sin. So God has a right to rule because He planted the vineyard Himself. He's the one who made us. He created us. And He has a right to judge because we're the ones who rebelled against Him. That's the basic story that's here. Now, you'll notice, first of all, in verses 2 through 5, that He sent His servants to glean, but they were repeatedly persecuted. Now, notice that these servants... Uh, are representative of a particular type of person in the Old Testament. There was a group in the Old Testament called the Yeveth Yahweh, the servants of the Lord. Those were the prophets. So when Jesus says, I sent my servants, they all knew exactly what he meant. It was the Yeveth. It was the, the servants in the Old Testament. They were the prophets. They were the servants of the Lord who came to the vineyard uh, to pick the fruit of the vineyard. Uh, it's very interesting, uh, for those of you who belong to the Presbyterian Church in America, in your book of order, your constitution, in the description of elders, it says of elders there in the church that they are to seek the fruit of the preached word. That's, a, that's a, one great description of an elder. Uh, a spiritual leader in a church is a person who seeks the fruit that comes from the proclamation of the word, whether it's in the sanctuary or in Sunday school or in small groups, wherever it is, uh, a spiritual leader is always looking for that fruit. And, uh, and of course, prophets were the ones who were preaching the word themselves, but they were preaching and looking for the fruit. So they were gleaning. And these servants, Jesus said in his parables, were the servants of the one who planted the vineyard to come and glean uh, from the fruit. And, of course, the reason for fruit is so that the master will be made happy. And only those who know the master's happiness derive joy from bringing him joy in producing fruit. So the primary motive in any of our lives to produce fruit of any kind, whether it's ethical fruit in our personal lives or whether it's the fruit of, of restoring a community through sacrificial service, whatever kind of fruit it is, the primary motive is that we're bringing him joy and honoring him in it because it's his vineyard. And we're just simply producing a crop for him, for him to glean. And we have joy in that. We also know down deep inside that our master is very benevolent. He happens to also to be our father. And he happens to love his sons a lot. And he happened to have said to us that the whole thing is going to be ours. So, yeah, we're collecting all this income for him. We're bearing all this fruit for him. But we know that one day, actually, the whole kingdom is going to devolve upon ourselves. We're the ones who are the heirs, and we know this in our hearts because we know he's gracious. However, if you don't think he's gracious, if you don't think he's treating you like a son, if you're not sure he's going to keep his promise to give you the vineyard, then you resent every bit of fruit he takes. You resent the glory that he derives from your suffering because you, you do not believe down deep in your heart that eventually it's going to come back to you hundredfold. You don't trust his grace. And therefore, you resent his taking advantage of you. That's what's happening in this vineyard. The servants of the Lord come to seek the fruit of, of his kindness and his grace. And all that he gets from those who are in their vineyard, all he gets from the church, are people who resent his taking something from them. It's kind of like when you give your tithes and offerings. You can either resent it because you don't realize you're making an, advance, uh, an investment that's going to pay a million fold. Uh, you know, or, or you enjoy giving because you know that there's no way you can outgive the one that you're giving to. So it's a different mentality in your mind. If you do not trust God as a gracious father, then you're going to resent the role of the prophets, the role of the preacher, the role of the Bible. Anything that comes to you that seeks to bring glory to God. That's what was happening here. Uh, he sent his servants to glean, but they were repeatedly persecuted. Look what they did. They seized the prophet, they beat him, and they sent him away empty-handed. And all you have to do, gentlemen, is turn to the Old Testament prophets, uh, and you will see in, in the, oh, the historical books the prophets getting slapped, thrown down in wells, uh, put to death uh, just over and over again. And uh, you'll find that that is exactly what's going to happen to you. Maybe not physically. But in some way, you're going to, the world is going to respond to you in the same way. Why? Because you are the Yehveh Yahweh. You are the servants of the Lord. You are the prophets. If you're following Jesus Christ, you then become one 
who is the messenger to the world and the servant to the world. And they, the world, don't expect the world to give you a big welcome home banquet. <laughs> you know, they, they resent the one that you represent down deep in their hearts. As nice as they may want to try to be, down deep inside they resent it. So what do you do with that? Well, let's look at it for just a moment. Keep your finger right there in Mark chapter 12. But turn over to Matthew chapter 5 and let's look and see what we do with this. This is going to sound a little strange, but we consider this a blessing. When Jesus gave his benedictions at the very beginning of his preaching ministry in Matthew chapter 5, this is page 1550, he gave a bunch of benedictions or blessings. And look at the last one he gives in verse 10. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So it doesn't say in verse 11, blessed are you when people insult you uh, because you're a Virginia fan. It doesn't say that. It says, Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you because of me. Because of your association, not with your tribe or your family or your business or your university, but your association with him. It's a blessing to be persecuted because of that association. Why? Because the prophets were also persecuted before you and ultimately because... Jesus Christ was persecuted and you're identifying with him and you're enjoying the intimacy of being with him and you're looking forward to the same reward that he got, which was to be crowned with everlasting glory at the right hand of his father. And that's how you're going to be crowned. And there'll be more jewels in your crown, the more you're persecuted for his sake, not persecuted for being a horse's rear end, which many Christians do from time to time. We ought to be persecuted because we, we, we're shrill and we're not kind and so on. But when you're genuinely persecuted for genuinely following Jesus Christ, it is a great blessing. You may say, it doesn't feel like one. Well, start to make it feel like one. Because you know what? You can train your affections, your emotions, to get in line with the truth. When you continue to contemplate the truth of your reward in being blessed like the prophets. But Jesus is saying, back to Mark chapter 12 now. Jesus is saying that this is all part of humans sin and this is the result of it that we do not reward people who are following Jesus we persecute them now notice secondly he sends his son what happens to his son he was killed he wasn't just beaten and sent away empty-handed he was actually killed in verses six through eight and look how they put it this is the heir come let's kill him and the whole estate will be ours how piercing is this parable about the ultimate motives of those who are opposing Jesus Christ. Let's get rid of his authority and let's just take over the whole blooming thing for ourselves. It'll be ours. There's no God. Let's be our own gods. I mean, this is 2,000 years old. Ancient wisdom. And Jesus is piercing right to the heart of what not only of the unbeliever rebels against Jesus Christ. But guess what? What in your flesh, your own heart sometimes, is the motive for rebelling against Jesus Christ? Let's just have Jesus turn his head for a few moments, and I can say a few nasty words to my wife. Uh, let's get Jesus turn his head for just a moment, and I can take over and I can make out my tax return however I want to. It has nothing to do with reality or the truth or what I owe the government. It has nothing to do with it. Let's just do whatever the heck I want to do, and let's get rid of Jesus Christ in this. So whenever we're getting rid of Jesus Christ in our minds, we're trying to take over for our own selfish interests. Jesus just nails it, of course. And then look in verses 9 through 11. Thirdly, we see that he will punish and replace all who seek to overthrow his authority. It says literally he will come and kill these tenants and give the vineyard to others. And, of course, we know this was fulfilled in the destruction of Jerusalem just a few years later. And in Mark 13, we'll see certain predictions uh, about that. Um, and we see that there is no way that anyone is ever going to get away with o- trying to overthrow the authority of Jesus Christ. It just ain't going to work. You know, the big question, is it working for you? No, it's not going to work for you. You stretch that timeline out far enough and see what kind of fruit you're going to get from your investment. 
from making yourself your own authority instead of Jesus Christ. And you find out it's going to be rotten fruit. And it's going to be judgment. It's going to be very, very sad because Jesus Christ is honorable. Jesus Christ is Lord. Jesus Christ is holy. Jesus Christ is good. He is righteous. He is King of kings and Lord of lords. And he would be defaming himself and defaming the entire creation he made if he let you get away with rebellion. Because he is king. And in order to restore order and restore righteousness in the entire universe, he establishes his own throne and he will defend it. And anyone who loves him and loves humanity wants him to defend it. And he promises that he will. No one is getting away with anything. Now, the only way that you and I get away with our foolishness is because Jesus Christ himself, in a few days after this, lays down his life on the cross. And he pays a severe penalty for our sin. And that is part of the judgment of God. God's judgment fell upon him because of our wickedness and overthrowing, uh, seeking to overthrow his kingdom. So he will punish and he will replace. Now, notice this. Punish and replace. Now, this is very difficult for the church to hear. But Jesus Christ is going to establish his kingdom. He said, I will build my church. And when his existing church decides that he will not be Lord, his existing church, that's what this is, his vineyard, his church, his church will be punished and replaced. And you can look through the corridors of time over the past 2,000 years, and you will see over and over again in one nation after another where the church has risen up, it has decided to go another direction to throw over the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ and His Word, and they have been punished and replaced. And the same thing will happen here. If the church decides that it wants to leave the authority of the Scriptures and come up with all kinds of foolishness for ways to get around what the Scripture is clearly saying, they will be punished and cut off and replaced. No one will be cut off who is truly in Jesus Christ. But the church is made up of people who profess to be in Christ. Some are truly in Him. And some are putting on a really good show. They will be punished and replaced. If you want to know what happened to the nation of Israel, she was in large part punished and replaced. And these are words that the Pharisees and the Sadducees did not want to hear because in their minds they said in Jeremiah 7, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. As long as we've got the temple, we're fine. We're the people of God. We're the vineyard. We're the church. I was baptized. I was circumcised. I was my mama, my grandmama, my da 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 I'm an heir. I own this place. They were punished and replaced. All you have to do is look in Romans chapter 11. Paul describes this. He says, those who rejected the authority of Jesus Christ in Israel were cut off. They weren't just disciplined. They were cut off. Meanwhile, the gospel goes to the Gentiles, like most of us here in this room. Those who respond from non-Israel are these, what Paul calls, wild olive shoots, these wild people, and they were grafted in to the stump. So Jesus, or rather God, cut off unbelieving Israel, that is Israel who did not trust in Jesus, cut them off, left a veritable stump, grafted in wild olive branches, and replaced the old branches. And the same will go for us. We can have children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren. Let none of us say, oh, my children, they were brought up in Sunday school. Well, that's a good thing. And Paul goes to great lengths in Romans 9 to explain how good a thing it is to be an Israelite. To have the covenants, to have the worship, to have the law, to have all the, the sacraments and so on. But when we reject Messiah and choose another authority, we are not just simply immature church people. We're cut off. And replaced. And when the Pharisees complained because the children were giving hosannas to Jesus on Palm Sunday, what did Jesus say? If they didn't praise me, the very stones would cry out. If he doesn't replace us with people, he replaces us with rocks. 
He will have a church that will praise Him. That's the kind of judge that He is. He is very kind and gracious. In no way am I demeaning in any sense His gentleness and humility. I'm simply saying He is both kind and gracious and holy and righteous and sovereign. And He is not to be trifled with by men who decide like a buffet when they want His authority and when they don't. You must be very careful because He says here they will be punished and replaced. And as the speaker of the morning, I can honestly say I desire that nobody here in this room and no one's children represented in this room get replaced because we chose another authority. Notice fourthly in the last verse, those opposed to him are only restrained by popular opinion. Here you have it. It's just a popularity contest. Whatever I say in public is just what I think you're going to like or what I can get by with. And that is the measuring rod for a man who rejects the authority of Jesus Christ. Let me just ask you, if you reject his authority, what is the standard for what you're going to do? How do you decide what you're going to do and what you're not going to do? How do you decide when to take a stand for something? You know what it is? It's based on the fear of men. Some of you are very subtle and sophisticated and nuanced in how you do that, and some of you are very blunt and brutal in how you do it. But down deep inside, if you're not in submission to the authority of Jesus Christ, it's a popularity contest. Some of you know I went to, to uh, welcome home my son from Iraq this past week. It was really great to get him home. And, uh, of course, we were asking him a zillion questions, and he seemed to be uh, happy enough to answer us. But he was telling us about one situation here, here in the American service, you know, in the Marines. And they were given an order to take out these men on the roadside. There were ten of them just standing there. And there's a big hole right in front of them in the ground. Of course, we know what they're probably doing, probably planning an IED. But he, they didn't catch them red-handed. And they're in two helicopters, and they're given orders to take them out. And, of course, you, what you do is you take your nose up, and then you come down and just, and just splatter blood and guts everywhere. And while their noses were going up, they were arguing with the commander, just saying, you know what, we did not catch these guys red-handed. And furthermore, they're waving white flags, which they do all the time anyway. They're very deceitful. They didn't catch them red-handed. And they argued the commander right out of the command. They weren't going to shoot. So they get back and, of course, have a big discussion in the base. Well, you know, you disobeying an order or did you do what was right? How do you decide what to do? How do you know what to do? Is it just always do exactly what the commander says? Or is it always to rebel against what your supervisor says? What is the rule? The rule is to try to discern in your heart what's the will of Jesus Christ for my life. And that's the only place you have to stand. You have no other reason to stand anywhere unless it's a popularity opinion poll or you're trying to decide what's right in the eyes of Christ. I don't know how I should decide. Didn't you run into this in your own life? Those of you who are following Christ, before you came to Christ, didn't you run into this conundrum in your own life? I mean, I did. I remember seeking to exercise leadership in various forms as a high school student and never being able to figure out really finally with any conviction where to stand when tough decisions had to be made among my peers in, in the student body. It, was, it all measured out to be a popularity contest. You're going to do what the authorities want you to do or what your peers want you to do, and how are you going to weigh it out? And it's all a political measurement. And one thing that happened to me when I became a Christian, not that I've carried it out perfectly, that's for sure, but one thing that came clear to me was I now have an authority in my life that's clear. I may not be knowledgeable. I may not have read all my Bible. I may not know what it all says or what it all means. But one thing I know for sure, I have an authority in my life that I will die for, and now things are real clear. And I don't see how you can have things real clear. I think the whole world is confused in ambiguity because they don't have any authority but the popularity opinion polls. And when you do that, those are always changing, and they're rarely correct. And that's what Jesus is saying here is that those who oppose them, look at this, they looked for a way to arrest him because they knew that he had spoken the parable against them, but they were afraid of the crowd. So they left him. They didn't have the courage of their convictions. They were afraid of the crowd. And so even when they wanted to do wickedness, they couldn't because they were captive to the opinions of the majority of the populace. What a miserable life to live. There's no reward anywhere you go. When you live for Jesus Christ, you may be a minority of one at times, 
But when you know what you're doing, your reward is in heaven and you find great pleasure in giving fruit from the vineyard for him. It's a wonderful way to live is all I can say. And it's based on the truth of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, that's the parable he tells, which then makes really clear what is going on here. And I think there are really only two responses, and that's the point. There are only two responses. Uh, you can either submit to his authority or you can reject his authority. And that's the reason he tells the parable. And, and, the, and the Pharisees and Sadducees know that he's talking about them having rejected his authority. So the question is, what are you going to do? And that's the reason for the parable. What are you going to do? Where's your authority? Are you willing to lay your life down? Are you willing to suffer the, the, the cost of having his authority in your life and standing up for it? That's the big question. Now, let's look at some of these further questions that are posed to the Lord Jesus as he approaches the cross. This is Holy Week uh, in the, in the um, first century. As Jesus is preparing to lay his life down, he just gets this avalanche of questions. And uh, it's the same way that our lives are lived. If, if we're living in them openly, we too face a lot of questions. And we're going to see how Jesus answers. Let's look, first of all, at verses 13 through 34. And we'll see that Jesus answers our questions. He takes on three big questions. Let's take one at a time. First of all, Jesus answers a question on politics. If you're going to try to trap somebody, if you want to make them unpopular... Why don't you talk about politics? That's the reason they say, you know, never talk about religion or politics. Why? Because it divides people. Well, religion is important to talk about in the right places, in the right time, in the right way. Uh, politics, I think, can be too. Because it's that next level of thinking. Your politics is going to grow out of your worldview, which is growing out of your theology, which is growing out of your love for Christ. So these are all concentric circles in your thinking. But if you really want to divide people and... and and conquer by division, you can talk about politics, get people warring with each other, and then you can quietly slip out of the room. Well, here's what, that's what was going on. And notice that it is the Pharisees and the Herodians who basically hated each other, but who, because Jesus was there, become great friends. You ever notice that? Sometimes you can become the common enemy for a lot of people who generally don't get along with each other. And often when, when Jesus Christ is being opposed you'll find a strange coalition of people who want Jesus to get the heck out of there and sometimes want you to get out as well. But let's look at the story in verses 13 through 17. Later, they sent some of the Pharisees and Herodians to Jesus to catch him in his words. They came to him and said, Teacher, we know you are a man of integrity. You aren't swayed by men because you pay no attention to who they are, but you teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. Is it right to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay or shouldn't we? But Jesus knew their hypocrisy. Why are you trying to trap me, he asked. Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. They brought the coin and he asked them, whose portrait is this? And whose inscription? Caesar's, they replied. Then Jesus said to them, give to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's. And they were amazed at him. <laughs> they were amazed. They were amazed. They were amazed at the clarity of truth. They were amazed at the simplicity of its application. They were amazed at the righteousness and humility and boldness of what he was saying. They were amazed that whereas nobody else could answer this question and get away with it, everybody else who tried to answer that question would always get into political trouble with either the right wing or the left wing. And for the first time in their lives, they saw with the authority of Jesus Christ that he settled the dust for everybody. Amazing answer. And I want you to know that Jesus' truth continues to amaze me day after day. I read his word, and oftentimes I just come back from the text just amazed at the radiance and the beauty and the delicious uh, experience of taking in the truth of God. There's nothing like it anywhere in the universe. They were totally amazed. Now, notice what Jesus is saying about politics. First of all, he sees through our hypocrisy. Jesus, we know you are a man of integrity. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. Right. <laughs> what flattery. What BS. <laughs> There's just no other way to, to describe it. Oh, we know you're a man of integrity. And they intend to do him in. This is just Judas. This is the... This is the, the Pharisees and the Herodians at their worst, playing their political tricks, just flattering their enemy. We know that you're a man of integrity. We have a question for you. 
and Jesus seeing right through it, why are you trying to trap me? <laughs> and you know what? If you've had the experience of being nabbed by Jesus Christ, you, you feel this. You've experienced this with all your BS. And Jesus said, why are you playing games? You know that experience. I know it. In fact, he does it to me about every day. <laughs> you Because know, I'm always playing games, aren't you? I mean, my flesh is always at war with, with the Spirit of Christ in me. And I always have these decisions to make. And it's always, why are you playing this game? Why are you trying to make something complicated that's really fairly simple? Why are you trying to trap me? Why are you trying to manipulate me? Why are you trying to use me? Why are you trying to put me down so that you can go up? So he sees, he sees right through our hypocrisy, our flattery, our trying to pretend that, you know, really, we believe that religion's a good thing. We, we believe that Jesus was a good man. Right. Why are, you trying, why are you playing games? You don't really believe he was a good man because good men don't tell lies consistently over and over again. And if Jesus is not Lord of lords and kings of kings, he is a flat liar or a lunatic. So why are you going to flatter him by calling him a good man and you're not going to submit to him and bow to him as king of kings and lord of lords? It's baloney. And so Jesus sees through it all uh, as you would expect. But then in verses 15 through 17, we see that Jesus teaches us how to honor all proper authorities. Give to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's. I was talking to a young man not too long ago who was thinking about military service. And he said, how can I do that and, uh, and maintain my Christian integrity? And I said, we talked about several aspects of this. But, you know, where we started out was I said to him, you know, you have to be sure in your mind that if you're going to go into the military service, you can see your service there as service to the Lord. And let's get it at its worst point. If you cannot see that defending your country, even to the point of laying down your life or taking somebody else's life in a just war, is service to the Lord, then you shouldn't do it. So, uh, I mean, that's the mo- isn't that the, the worst case scenario where you are called upon to take another man's life? It's either his life or your life. And you're willing to take either of them for the cause before you? That's, you know, in a just war I'm talking about. It has to be a just war. So you need to know the just war theory. You need to know what the scriptures say about the civil authorities and where the Augustinian just war theory comes from. And all that has to be in your mind. You need to have that doctrine in your head. Or you can't serve faithfully. And it's going back here to what Jesus says. Give to Caesar what is Caesar's. And you better know in your mind, what is Caesar's? What did God give Caesar to carry out? And what part of me belongs to Caesar as a citizen of Rome? And therefore, what do I owe him? And Jesus is making it very clear that whatever that is, that's what you're supposed to do. Because all civil authority is authority derived from God. It's not just your mama and your daddy. It's not just your school teacher. It's not just your supervisor at work. It's not just uh, the church uh, elders or the bishop or whatever you have. It's every authority that is given to us on earth, says Paul in Romans 13, is derived from God. So our service is service to God. When we know in our consciences that it is proper civil authority, which we're obeying. So Jesus makes that very clear. Give to Caesar what is Caesar's. And then he makes it very clear. Give to God what is God's. And so he hands the coin back. It has a picture of Caesar on it. He says, give to Caesar what is Caesar's. Pay taxes. Pay your taxes. Your payment of taxes is just as holy as your tithe. Say, oh, come on, Wilson, I don't believe that for a minute. You better start believing it. Because on one hand, God, he institutes the civil authorities and gives them the authority to tax. On the other hand, he gives us the ecclesiastical authority and gives them the authority to preach the tithe. And they're both derived from God. So don't think that you're making up for cheating on your taxes or you know, shorting the government by giving a little extra over here on Sunday morning. Forget that. It's tempting, I agree. <laughs> but it doesn't work. Give to Caesar what is Caesar's. Give to God what is God's. And, that's, and then there are those moments, like the one I just described, where a moment ago, where you can get into a conflict with Caesar and God. Now what are you going to do? Well, you always 
give to God what is God's and he rules over everything. There are times when your church will preach something from the pulpit, which is wrong. And in your conscience, you know it. It's your obligation not to believe it nor to obey it. There are times when the civil government will ask you to do something that is wrong. It may just be wrong-headed, but it's wrong. And it's your obligation not to believe it and not to do it. By the way, where my son was, and they didn't splatter the place with blood and guts, that was Haditha, where unfortunately we did have a major mistake that was made there just earlier. And uh, it also was true that a few days later, a couple of, of his marine colleagues were blown up by AEDs. If you only work by revenge and by the rule of engagement of the world, you just take people out who killed your friends. But if you work on rules of engagements that are based on God's Word, the best that you can do it, then you work by the rules of engagement that are right and good. And that's what he's saying here. Give to Caesar what is Caesar. But give to God what is God's. And he happens to rule over Caesar and he rules over the church. So he deals with the Pharisees and Herodians on these political questions and gives us a sentence that has endured for 2,000 years. Gentlemen, do you see the brilliance of the Lord Jesus Christ? The brilliance of righteousness. Righteousness leads to intelligence. It leads to truth. And this has echoed through the chambers of history for 2,000 years. Give to Caesar's what is Caesar's. Give to God what is God's. Brilliantly simple. Now he takes on the question of eternity with the Sadducees, who, as you may know, only believed that the Pentateuch was the Word of God, the first five books of the Bible. They accepted Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. They did not accept any of the other books, the prophetic books or the historical books, as the Word of God. They furthermore said they didn't believe in the miraculous. They didn't believe in angels. They didn't believe in the resurrection. So here the Sadducees are going to come and show how foolish Jesus is for being so influenced by the Pharisees and other people who did believe in the resurrection. Let's look at what they say in verse 18. Then the Sadducees, who say there is no resurrection, came to him with a question. Teacher, they said, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife but no children, the man must marry the widow and have children for his brother. Now, there were seven brothers. The first one married and died without leaving any children. The second one married the widow, but he also died leaving no child. It was the same with the third. In fact, none of the seven left any children. Last of all, the woman died too. At the resurrection, whose wife will she be since the seven were married to her? Okay, this is what is known um, in uh, rhetoric as reductio ad absurdum. That is, your opponent is going to reduce your argument to absurdity. So let's take your argument, let's take a difficult case, and let's show how it doesn't work. So Jesus, you believe in the resurrection. Ah, okay. Let's talk about leveret marriage from Deuteronomy 25, where if your brother uh, dies and he was married, it's your obligation to take care of his wife. So you'll marry her and bring her into your family. All right? Now let's assume that happened seven times, Jesus. Now, whose wife will she be? You'll have seven guys grabbing for her in heaven. You ever thought about that? Some of you have a couple of three wives in heaven. Uh, and you ever thought about it? What, what am I going to say now when I get up there? Uh, who am I going to hug first? <laughs> this is going to be a challenge, you know. And Jesus says to us, you don't, you don't know the Scriptures, nor do you know the power of God. He says to the Sadducees, and you'll notice he takes a text from the part of the Bible they believed. He takes it. Let's look at what he says. We hadn't read it yet, have we? He says in verse 24, Are you not in error because you do not know the Scriptures or the power of God? When the dead rise, they will neither marry nor be given in marriage. They will be like the angels in heaven. Of course, they didn't believe in angels. Now, about the dead rising, have you not read, look at this, in the book of Moses, the Pentateuch, in the account of the bush, how God said to him, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. You are badly mistaken. He says, let's take the book that you believe in. God describes himself as a living God. And he says, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Do you say, do you think he was saying, I'm the God of those dead bones in the ground? He was saying, I'm the God of men who have gone into the Lord's presence. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He's God of the living, not of the dead. Which is to say, 
your whole religion is dead. Which is to say, those who in our own day, very popularly in many churches around, speak of the resurrection as a metaphor, let me tell you something, their religion's a metaphor. It's a metaphor for wickedness. It's dead. It leads to nothing but unrighteousness. God is God of the living, not of the dead. And he says, you do not understand your own scriptures that you do believe in, much less the scriptures that you don't believe in. Nor do you know the power of God in resurrection. And don't you know that when we get into heaven, there is no marriage in heaven. This is no big problem that you raise for me. Because all of us are brothers and our wives are our sisters with whom we have a peculiar temporary relationship on earth. And our marriages, all of them, only last as long as we live. When we get to heaven, we'll be more intimate with them than we ever were here. And it's difficult for us to imagine this. But we'll be more intimate with everybody else than we ever were with the most intimate relationship we had on the earth because the relationships in heaven are so far surpassingly wonderful beyond anything we've actually known here. All we can do is just get a taste of it. And that most intimate taste is in sexual union with our wives, with a conversation at the breakfast table, and with taking a trip or a vacation somewhere and enjoying the beauties of God's creation, you can, or talking about some great book together, or whatever it is where you experience intimacy. That's just a taste of the great intimacy we're going to have in heaven. Obviously, he says to them, you know nothing about the power of God in making us family. And all those women will be your sisters. And there will be no jealousy. And there will be no problem. We'll all delight in one another's presence. So Jesus discusses things with the Sadducees. And then thirdly, and this will be our last uh, point for today, Jesus teaches on the law. And with whom does he speak? But a lawyer, a, a scribe, you know, a teacher of the law himself. Let's look at verses 28 through 34. He says, uh, the, Mark says, one of the teachers of the law came and heard them debating, noticing that Jesus had given them a good answer. He asked him, of all the commandments, which is the most important? The most important one answered Jesus is this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this. Love your neighbor as yourself. There's no commandment greater than these. Well said, teacher, the man replied. You are right in saying that God is one and there is no one, no other but Him. To love Him with all your heart, with all your understanding, with all your strength, and to love your neighbors yourself is more important than all burnt offerings and sacrifices. When Jesus saw that He had answered wisely, He said to him, You are not far from the kingdom of God. And from then on, no one dared ask Him any more questions. And then, of course, He begins asking them a question. But notice on this that Jesus teaches us to abide by the law. He says, you know, there's, there's no teacher of the law who's going to come ask Jesus a question about the law and walk away thinking that they love the law more than Jesus does. Jesus knows the law of God. Now, you'll notice that all of the moral commandments in the Old Testament can be summarized by the Ten Commandments. That's, that's the Ten Commandments is like the legal constitution. All the other commandments are like statute law. They derive from the Constitution. Just like in our case in America, we have our Constitution and then we have all of our laws and they all have to, pair, they have to comport with the Constitution or the, or the judge will rule them out of order. The same is true in the Old Testament. You have ten commandments, that's the Constitution, the moral Constitution. All the other commandments comport with the ten commandments. Now what Jesus is doing is going to the Constitution and summarizing it. And this was the big Debate among all the lawyers. They love to talk about the law, figure out the priorities of the law, figure out how to summarize the law, and they go to Jesus and say, what's your take on it? And Jesus said, basically, the Ten Commandments has two tablets. First four commandments, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. The second tablet, beginning with honor your parents, your, your mother, and your father, teaches us this, love your neighbors yourself. That's it. And the teacher is kind of taken aback and says, Wow, that's, that's good. <laughs> that's really good. Of course, Jesus is going, oh, thanks, I really needed that. Uh, but, but this man is not flattering Jesus. He really is reflecting on the truthfulness of what Jesus is saying. That when you give yourself to the mind of Christ, 
if you will take on his mind for your mind, you'll find that certain things start to fall out and make sense and get into order and get into shape and you can make sense out of them. Some of the ambiguity begins to evaporate like a fog uh, later in the morning because you have a commitment, a moral commitment. Once you make a moral commitment out of love for Christ, you find that clarity begins to come. And that's what this man was saying. That makes sense. That's really good. And Jesus says, you're not far from the kingdom of God, which is a really interesting thing here to say. Jesus is teaching us to abide by the law, the whole law with love, the whole law with love. And then we notice that Jesus knows our hearts. He says, you're not far from the kingdom of God. Why did he say that to this man? Why did he say you're not far? Because the man called him teacher. Jesus is a teacher. But he's a lot more than a teacher. If he's only your teacher, you're just going to get yourself all worked up into guilt and shame and condemnation. Because once you get to know his teachings and how phenomenal they are, you're going to realize what a lousy sinner you are. And if Jesus is only your teacher, you're just going to damn yourself. But he's also your Savior. And the whole point of his teaching is to lead you to trust in him for your salvation. So that when you get his teaching, his moral teaching, you realize, I can't do this. I'm a sinner. I can't possibly accomplish that. And he says, you just come over here to me. Trust in me. I've accomplished it for you. And then I'll send you back to the law to give it your best shot without condemnation. So he was close to the kingdom. He saw the teaching of Jesus as being true. But he hadn't quite entered the kingdom because he hadn't yet put his trust in Jesus, not just as teacher, but as Savior from the punishment of the law and the punishment of breaking his teachings. And you have to have Jesus as both. With that, let's close. Lord Jesus Christ, our teacher and Savior, we thank you for the brilliance of your teaching that comes from the commitment in your heart to honor your Father and lay down your life as a sacrifice for us. Help us, O Lord, this day to receive that sacrifice and to receive the teachings that we may be men who are wise to face the world before us even today. For we pray in your precious name. Amen. God bless you, gents. Hey, Shep.